Psalm 107 tonight. Psalm 107. Uh, we have favorites, I guess, as we go, and this certainly is one of mine. I've always enjoyed this particular psalm. Psalm 107. If you recall, the book of Psalms, our book of Psalms, is one long book. The Jews divided these into five different books, and tonight we are beginning the first psalm of the last book, the first psalm of book five in the Jewish way of reckoning. Let's read it together. You'll notice it's a rather long one, but it's a good one. Psalm 107. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Gather them out of the lands from the east, from the west, the north, the south. And they wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought them down, their, brought down their heart with labor, they fell down, and there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and broke their bands in sunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he hath broken the gates of brass, and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools. Because of their transgression and because of their iniquities are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men, and let them sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and declare his works with rejoicing. They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the ways thereof. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths, their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits' end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they are quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a wilderness, and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell therein. He turneth the wilderness 
uh, to a standing water and dry ground into water springs. And there he maketh the hungry to dwell, that they may prepare a city for habitation, and sow the fields and plant vineyards, which may yield fruits of increase. He blesses them also, so that they are permitted, uh, they are gra- multiplied greatly, and suffereth not their cattle to decrease. Again, they are minished or diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. He poureth contempt upon the princes, causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. He setteth yet the poor on high from affliction and maketh their families like a flock. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. This psalm in some way sets the stage for the other psalms that are going to follow in this book. And setting the stage is probably an apt way of stating it because what we have here in this psalm is like uh, four vignettes. Do you all know what a vignette is? Familiar with that expression? What's that? A story, uh, it's like scenes in a play. You say a vignette is a, is a scene or a uh, one little simple sample, and then you go to the next one, and so forth. And if you notice, the repetition, you see the repetition here? Uh, over and over again, four times we read, then they cried unto the Lord, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And four times we read, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. So notice that we've got four little scenes. It's like setting the stage in a play. And each scene has a different background, has a different setting. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about those as we go through. But each scene is designed that we do what we're being told to do in verse 1, to give thanks to the Lord because He's good and because His mercy endures forever. So each scene is reinforcing this, this central theme of seeing in all of these events God's goodness and His mercy towards His people. Let's look at scene number 1. It starts about in verse 2 and runs down through verse 9, and you'll notice that it is God gathering out of lands, and notice lands from all directions, His his redeemed. Uh, We say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, which is supposed to be a way to get you to say something. Uh, But notice that those who God has redeemed are the ones who should say what has just been uttered in verse 1. In other words, verse 1 tells us, Give thanks to the Lord because He's good, His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. They are the ones of all people who ought to make this their their uh, testimony. Beth, uh, the song y'all just sang a moment ago, had something in it about a guilty tongue. Break my tongue, it's guilty silence. In other words, the tongue... Uh, of the man for whom God has done so many wonderful, merciful things is a guilty tongue if it's a silent tongue. So the tongues of those for whom God has shown himself merciful, uh, they ought to burst forth in thanksgiving, and that's what's being described here. Notice that the scene is very much like what we read about in the Exodus. You've got a people who are in bondage, and they are being redeemed out of the hands of their enemies, 
And then notice in verse 4, they are wandering in the wilderness. Remember, the Israelites were redeemed out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness. So, uh, And notice they find no city to dwell in. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They're at the point of fainting, falling out. And then they cry. Uh, it's interesting, the word then, that you see throughout this psalm, that it almost takes this for them to cry. And when they cry, God hears them. But notice they don't cry until they're hungry and thirsty and about ready to fall out. So notice that you begin to sort of put the pattern together that here, as long as they think they are in control of their circumstances, as long as they think things are going to work out all right, they don't bother crying. But when it appears that all is lost, they're on the point of just falling aside, now they cry, and now God hears and delivers them, takes them in the right way, brings them to a city. And so, verse 8 the plea of the psalmist, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. In other words, this that God has done for you ought to then bring you to praise his name. Why? Verse 9 is the final line of this section. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Notice they're out in the wilderness. There's nothing to eat, nothing to drink. God hears their cry, provides for them. That's exactly what happened in Israel's case. Now let me ask you this, is it to be understood as a guilty thing, the fact that they're in the wilderness? In other words, we asked ourselves, why are they in the wilderness? Is this a, uh, uh, they got no business being in the wilderness, they shouldn't be in the wilderness? What, what do you think? When Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, where was God taking them? The promised land, Canaan. What's between Egypt and, the, and Canaan? The wilderness. There is no way to get from Egypt to Canaan without going through the wilderness. And so notice that Israel was not guilty because they were in the wilderness where there was nothing to eat or drink. Now the fact that they stayed in the wilderness another 38 years, they were guilty for the extension but there's a sense in which the wilderness was just the inevitable consequence of God having redeemed his people. They're, they're not guilty, they're not wicked because they're there. And so we would ask ourselves, well then, why did God put them in the wilderness? Why does God put us, and let's you know, sort of ask these questions as we go through here, why is God doing this to his people? What do you think his point is of bringing his people out of a land of bondage and captivity? We don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem with them going into the land of milk and honey. But why in the meanwhile does he take them into a place where there's no Kmarts or Walmart, there's no Kroger's, there's nothing to eat, there's no water, there's not even a stream of water? Why does he put his people in a situation like that? He's going to teach them something. Go, hold your finger here. We'll be right back. Deuteronomy 8, one of the most interesting statements, I think, in all the Bible. Deuteronomy 8. Look in verse 2, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Moses says to Israel, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness. Notice he's at the tail end of the wilderness wandering. And what was God doing with you in the wilderness? Get the list here. To humble you. How does putting you in the wilderness humble you? 
you have to depend on somebody besides you. He suffered you to hunger. He fed you with man. In other words, none of this caught God by surprise. The fact that there wasn't anything to eat out in the wilderness, he planned it that way. He planned to put his people in a place where they couldn't feed themselves and where they had to depend on him to supply what they're going to eat every day, namely the manna. And notice uh, he says, Which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know. He's talking about the manna. That he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now you're familiar with that phrase. That's what Jesus replied to Satan when Satan tempted him to turn the stones into bread. He said, Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Quoting this right here. What does that mean? In this context, what is that saying? In other words, there's something you need worse than you need water and bread. You need God. You need His Word. You need to depend on Him. There is another kind of bread that is far more essential to you than the bread that you're going to put in your mouth. Because if you've got that bread, the other will inevitably follow. God will provide that. You just need to remember that the real... In other words, it's not so much the bread of God that you need as it is the God of the bread... You need, if God goes with you, then that's fine. But notice it is back to that, that, that whole process of teaching his people to rely on him, to look to him in faith. There's a sense in which that's the first lesson we learn as a Christian, and there's a sense in which that's the lesson we learn all our days as Christians. It's the last lesson we learn. We'll be working on that one. That's the problem that we are constantly dealing with because every time we turn around, we think we're sufficient for the problem at hand and we have to be taught again, no, you're not. And to do that, God puts us in a place where we cannot come up with our own bread. We cannot produce what's necessary. We have to depend on Him. So notice as we look at each one of these little vignettes, these little scenes, where we see the Lord teaching His people uh, sometimes we're going to see in the next one that we do have a cause and effect. But in this case, there's no wickedness, there's no disobedience, the fact that they're in the wilderness. It is the necessary proving ground and testing ground. It's, the, it's sort of like we had a practice field uh, out beside the gym back home when I played football. You got your regular football field out there, but they didn't want us practicing on that because we'd tear up the grass, kill all the grass. So you got this practice field. It's hard as a rock, and they didn't care if they had any grass on it or not. And uh, the point is, is that that practice field, rough and hard, uh, became the place where you're proven, where you're being tested. And so it is that the wilderness is such a place. Well, let's go on to scene number two. Scene number two starts in verse 10 and runs down through verse 16. And notice in this case, you find God's people sitting in darkness in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and ironed. Now, you have to understand, David is living right at the end of the Bronze Age and at the beginning of the Iron Age. Uh, the Philistines, early on, had iron uh, swords and implements. And for a long time, we read in the, la- the reign of King Saul, they tried to keep that technology secret from the Israelites. They wouldn't let the Israelites know how they made iron 
so that the Israelites would have to go to them to get their iron. Sort of like we do the same thing today. We come up with our new weapons and so forth. We try to hide our technology from uh, the Middle East and from China because we know as soon as they get their hands on it, they're going to copy it. And all our work of research and development and all the years we spent coming up with this, they'll just copy it and get it immediately. So we do our best to keep our high-tech stuff out of the hands of our enemies. In this case, the high-tech stuff is iron. And it's almost it was a colloquialism that a man could not break iron. And so the idea that these people are captives, they're in bondage, and they are bound in iron. They're sitting, he says, in the shadow of death. They're dead ducks, more or less. And notice in verse 11, we're given a reason why they're in this circumstance. It's because they've rebelled against the words of God and condemned the counsel of the Most High. Now this time, unlike the last little scene, this time we got cause and effect going on. They rebelled against God, they despised His words, so God brought their enemies upon them, and now they're captives. You say, well, where do we ever see that happen? Go to the book of Judges, and you see it happen over and over and over again. It's just an endless cycle. It's like a sine wave that the people are doing real good, and they forget to get back God. They turn away, and all of a sudden they go down. Their enemies come in and subjugate them. And while they're at the bottom, then they cry out to God and He sends them a Savior, sends them a judge, and then they get get back on track and then the judge dies and the thing just repeats and repeats. Endless cycle. So notice here that this time they are guilty. They have rebelled against God and He has placed them. Notice verse 12. He's the one. It may have been uh, the Philistines. It may have been the Amorites, physically speaking. But look at verse 12. He brought down their heart with labor, and they had nobody to help. That The insinuation is if they'd had somebody, that's who they'd have been looking to. But since they don't have anybody to, to help them, who do they cry to? Then, notice the then again, then they cry to the Lord. When they've run out of all other helpers, it isn't that human nature for you. Isn't that the way we are? You know, as long as we think we've got circumstances under control, we our prayer life takes off when we are face to face with the fact that we have no one else to turn to except the Lord. When we are backed into the corner and there's no way out, all of a sudden it's amazing how honest and how fervent we get in our prayers. So they're crying out to God, who again hears them. Notice, brings them out of darkness, the shadow of death, verse 14, and breaks their bands in sunder. These shackles that man's strength couldn't break, God's strength breaks. And again... Oh, that men would praise the Lord for such things. Why? Verse 16, because he has broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Uh, A gate of brass would have been almost impregnable in that day, and the bar of iron is that which is simply beyond man's strength. So you get the picture. This time, very unlike the last time, They're getting what they deserve. They're getting this as a consequence of their sin. All right, scene number three. Starting in uh, verse 17, running down through verse 22. And again, they are in trouble. And notice again in verse 17, it is because of their transgression and their iniquity. So it's very similar to the previous one. But notice they are called fools. A fool. Um, Why... What, what do you mean when you call somebody a fool? By the way, you're not supposed to call somebody a fool. 
according to our Lord. I call myself a fool sometimes, but what does it mean to call somebody a fool? What do we mean? It's the opposite of wisdom. It's like you ought to know better. In other words, we have what would be synonyms for foolishness. Stupid, (laughs) ignorant, words that are... You know, our kids, we try to keep them from saying to other kids. These are no-no words, you know. But but ignorant, stupid, foolish. And, and they all have to do with the same thing, as, as Philip is saying. You knew better. You knew better than this. And notice that, once again, God's people are exhibiting their foolishness. Um, I'm thinking, there was a fellow in the Bible named Fool. You know who he was? Nabal, Abigail's husband. And uh, you remember his servant, in talking to Abigail, says, well, he's aptly named. They named him right because that's exactly what he is. Well, how did Nabal uh, illustrate his foolishness? Well, he slandered the servants of David who came to him just asking for a handout when David had a 600-man army out in his back pasture. And you think of anybody you want to get on the good side of, it's the guy out, out back that's got a 600-man army. Uh, and David didn't come to him as he could have, demanding. He just came as an humble servant, just asking for a handout. And Nabal cusses his servants up one side and down the other. And this servant of Nabal's has more sense than his master. He goes to Abigail and says, Girl, you've got to do something. We're about to all get our heads chopped off here. And indeed they were. When David got news what what Nabal had said, it's like he turned to his guys and said, All right, boys. Slap on the leather. We're going. We're going after that fool. We're going after that dude. Um, well, anyway, you know the story. How stupid! How ignorant! And so, notice here we have the same thing going on. This time, it is their foolishness in that they knew better, but they have transgressed. And so, this time, verse eighteen seems to indicate that it is a sickness that has come upon them. Well, let me put it this way says their soul abhors all manner of meat or food. And the only time that ever happens to me is when I'm sick. I tell my wife, if I ever lose my appetite, get me to the hospital, I'm dying. <laughs> if I get that bad, I, where I lose my appetite. Yeah, it's serious, folks. But notice here that they abhor mere, uh, food, they draw nigh to the gates of death. So it is describing the process of a disease and then. Then they cry. Now notice in this case, not in all cases, in this case, their sickness is a consequence of their disobedience, their foolishness, their folly. And so in this case, they cry. Notice again, they're near death. They cry. Then they cry. And God, verse 20, sends His Word and heals them. That's what makes me think that this is a disease of some sort and He delivers them from their destruction. So again, oh, that men would praise the Lord. Oh, that men would praise the Lord without God having to do this to us. But better he do, do, he do things, better he does things like this that drives us to do what? Verse 22, to sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. He does these things to teach us of our need of him. And then scene 4 starts in verse 23 and runs down through verse 32. 
And it is a scene, it's sort of like you can almost imagine this up on a stage and the curtain closes and, and then when it opens again, you got a, you got a whole new setting. You got a new backdrop, new stage, new props. The whole situation has changed. We started out in the wilderness, wound up in the dungeon and then on the sick bed and now the curtain opens again. This time we're on a boat. We're on a ship out in the middle of the sea. Now, the Israelites, as you probably know, were not a seagoing people. They were landlubbers. Uh, in fact, the desperation of Jonah to get away from God it pretty much shows up in the fact that he boarded this ship uh, that was being sailed by a bunch of pagan Phoenicians in order to get away in the, head in the exact opposite direction that God wanted him to go. Now, the Phoenicians, on the other hand, they spent their life out on the sea. The area over there around Tyre and Sidon, they were traders, uh, became very rich over the trade up and down the Mediterranean Sea. So they were seagoing people. But the Israelites, by and large, were not. And after you read this, you may never... It's sort of like being on that carnival cruise. If, um, if that's the way it is out there on the sea, I don't ever want to get on a boat again in my life. I've always said... Being on a ship, to me, is sort of like being in jail with the added danger of drowning on top of it. But being on that carnival cruise line that was dead in the water, that puts a whole new perspective on why I'm going to think twice before I ever get on a cruise. But if you read this account, I remember the old British Puritan one time had the prayer of a sailor out on the sea. He says, Lord, thy... Thy waves are so tall and my ship is so small. Can you imagine being out on the ocean? I've seen it depicted. I, I remember talking to my uncle in World War II. He was on a freighter out in the Pacific. And he just said they were far more afraid of the storms than they ever were of the Japanese. Uh, the storms were far more deadly than the enemy was. And to be out in the middle of the ocean in a huge vessel and yet just being tossed, thrown, and the waves like mountains, just incredible. And notice what's being depicted here. They go down into a ship, into the sea, and they see the works of the Lord. Now, notice again, this is like the first little vignette in that there's no insinuation that they shouldn't have been out on the sea or they had no business on the sea, or, you know, they're sinning by going out on the sea. It's just the fact that's what they do. Sailors go out on the sea, okay? And notice that God shows His works in verse 24. He shows His works and His wonders in the sea, in the deep. And what does He do? Notice every single scene, it's God bringing this on them. And here He commands and raises up the stormy wind, and lifts up the ways thereof. That it is the Word of God that is controlling this storm. Of course, the same God who can make it storm is the same God who can make it stop. And that is what got the attention of the disciples that day out on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus stood up and said, Peace be still and everything calm down. What manner of man is this to whom even the winds and the waves obey? So notice it is God who raises up the storm um, they mount, verse 26, the waves mount up to the heavens, go down to the depths, and the sailor is reeling to and fro, staggering like a drunken man. And, of course, he doesn't include here, if you've got somebody like me on board that gets motion sick, 
at the drop of a hat that we are tossing our cookies at this point. Uh, we are throwing up our toes, uh, if you can imagine. And the desperate state is explained they are at their wit's end. Isn't that an interesting expression? We use that even today. Our wit is our smarts, our intelligence, but notice they are absolutely out of answers. They're out of hope. They are at their wit's end. And then, then they cry. Again, notice the pattern over and over again. When they have run out of all other resources and there is no other answer, then they cry to the Lord and He brings them out of their distresses, makes the storm calm, stills the waves and then, notice verse 30, then they are glad. It sort of implies that they weren't all that glad about having a calm sea before the storm, but after the storm, my, my, how glad they are. Sort of like after you're real good and sick. You may not have been thankful for your health before then, but you get through this, and now you're, now you're thankful. Then you will praise the Lord. And so then they're glad, and notice again the call to praise Him and to exalt His name among the people. Alright, so those are your four little vignettes, your four little scenes, interesting little subplots, if you will. To the, it's sort of like a disaster movie. You know, we had a bunch of those hit back, was that in the 70s? You know, you had airport, and, and you got all these subplots, you know. That all these disaster movies had the same the same, what do you want, what do you call it? Same motif. Uh, you've got the big disaster, and then you got all these little subplots in the middle. The worst one: don't ever waste your money going to see the swarm about the killer bees that attack Houston. It is by far it it it's right up there at the top of my list of the worst movies I've ever seen. And I mean, it had big names. You know, all these big disaster movies had these big stars and this one did too and all these subplots i just remember we were my wife and i and my mom and dad we were sitting in a theater in dallas and this little about halfway through this like a 13 year old kid sitting in the row in front of us says this is stupid you know you have wasted your money when the 13 year old says it's stupid it was don't ever waste your time or your money but the point is my point is that there are all these subplots going on. you got this main theme of the killer bees attacking Houston. <laughs> Don't even get me started. Anyway, horrible movie. Horrible. <laughs> they basically, to get rid of the bees, they burn Houston down. <laughs> That's what they do. Anyway, <laughs> terrible movie. Terrible. I mean, it's so it's so bad, it's good. You probably would enjoy it. Just have a good laugh looking at this crazy thing. But anyway, you got all these subplots, and that's what we've had here. All these subplots of all these different circumstances and situations where God is putting His people in circumstances where at the end of the day, they cry out to Him, and He hears them and gives mercy. So the conclusion now starts in verse 33 to the end which speaks of the fact that it is God who can reverse 
our circumstances in life. It's quite an interesting glimpse here. In verse 33 and 34, he can dry up the good ground. He can make the river go dry. He can make the pools dry up so that the land becomes absolutely unproductive and barren. In other words, he can turn, in verse 34, a fruitful land into a barren land. You say, well, when did God ever do that? You ever read about Sodom and Gomorrah that when Lot chose to go down there, he saw the well-watered plain? You know what's down where Sodom and Gomorrah is? That's the shallow end of the Dead Sea. And nothing growing, not one blade of green grass anywhere you want to look. God took the well-watered plain and dried it up. On the other hand, in verse 35, he turns the wilderness into standing water, a pool of water, dry ground into water springs and makes the hungry dwell there and prepares a place for them to have a city. So the God who can take the well-watered area, dry it up, can take the dried up area and make it well-watered. You see the reversal of, I want to say fortune, but it's not fortune. That would imply luck, chance. This is anything but. This is God doing this. Then notice the pattern repeats. In verse uh, 38, He blesses them and makes them to multiply and their cows to multiply. Then verse 39, He turns around and makes them subtract. Well, I guess the opposite of multiply would be divide, but here they're multiplying. They're getting more and more people, more and more cattle. Or he can turn around and take the people and the cattle and diminish their number and bring them low. You see the reversal again. Same thing then in verse 40 and 41. He can take the prince and humble him. And he can take the poor man in verse 41 and exalt him on high. God can do both those things. I heard a preacher say one time that God never humbles anybody, that the Bible always says humble yourself. Well, the Bible certainly says humble yourself, but don't ever think God can't humble anybody. He said, uh, old Nebuchadnezzar, after he got put out to pasture, when he finally got his wits back and his senses back, says, this God who's in the heavens to whom all the men of the earth are like grasshoppers, he that walks in pride, he is able to abase. He can humble the proud man. And so notice that he is humbling the prince. He is exalted, exalting the poor and making his family like a flock, a flock of sheep. And so the final analysis is verse 42. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. There is something about this that thrills the righteous person but absolutely confuses and stumps the wicked man. Would somebody explain that to me? What is there about what we've studied here? It's teaching us that God is calling the shots. And to the godly man, that's the best news he can ever have, that God is in control. To the lost man, it presents him with a terrific problem. Because to his eyes, he doesn't see the hand of God. 
And life then becomes very uncertain and unsettled and unsatisfying. Because the, the wicked man can never sort of put it on cruise control and just let her rip. It's like the man who said, well, I finally built my barns and my bigger barns. I'm, I can say to my soul, take your rest. And then that night he dies. He can't ever have anything certain because there's this God in the heavens that keeps messing with him. Won't let him ever find a place of rest in this world. And the same things that are happening here to the righteous man and all these little four vignettes is also happening to the wicked man, but the righteous man is able to rest in those circumstances. The righteous man is able to say, okay, I understand this. I can see what's going on here. Now, sometimes we have to be careful. We see something of affliction come, and we say, well, you've done something to deserve that. We're going to go to the book of Job this coming Sunday to begin a study there, and we're going to learn that not always is that the case. We have to be very careful sometimes in playing God, thinking that we know what God is doing. I don't know what God is doing, but I know who's doing it. I know the God that's doing it. That I know. And in that, I can rest. I can know that I ought to give thanks because He's good and His mercy endures forever. At the rescue missions, not just Pontiac, but especially Pontiac, they'll say, God is good. And the whole congregation will say back all the time, God is good all the time. That's what this verse is saying. He's good and His mercy endures forever, not just sometimes. And so that's what we know, the righteous. That's why we then can handle these circumstances like this. Because we may not know all the ins and outs of what God is doing, but we know God is doing it. And we know that in the end, it's designed for us to come to that conclusion that He's good and His mercy endures forever. 95% of the time, we know that the good man generally prospers. The wicked man, the liar, the cheat, doesn't. You have the whole book of Proverbs that teaches you things like that, that the industrious man, the one who gets up early, is the fellow who gets ahead in life, the fellow who's slothful, who lays around in bed all day, doesn't. 95% of the things that happen in life fit that general pattern. And the other 5% are described by the book of Job. <laughs> and that's where we're going to be going. Those are the ones that just when you think you've got this thing figured out, God throws us a curve. And we don't have a ghost of an idea what He's doing. In fact, when I get to the end of the book of Job, you're still going to be scratching your head saying, I don't understand what God was doing. That's one of the problems with the book of Job is we want to go in it and think we're going to find an answer for why people suffer. And we get to the end of the book and we're no better off on that score than we are on than we are when we start. But I do tell you what we do learn by the time we get to the end of the book, that if people suffer, it's because God brought the suffering. And if people are going to be delivered from suffering, it's because God is going to deliver them from it. That's what this psalm is teaching us. All right. 
I, I hope y'all like this song as much as I do. It's a good one. It's those little scenes, especially the one. What's your favorite? About to tell you which one mine was. Of those four scenes, which one you like the best? I like that one too. That's mine. The sea. I just like the 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 way it's described. I can just see it. I've never been in a situation like that. I don't want to be. But the way it is described, it perfectly fits what I think would be the situation out in the middle of the ocean in a horrible storm, and I think it describes where I would be at my wit's end, staggering to and fro like a drunken man. It is no surprise, is it, that old John Newton, who was the slave ship captain, now this is a captain of a ship, that had sailed I don't know how many times across the ocean. But it was during a storm that God began the work of breaking his proud heart. In the middle of this storm, he got down on his knees and began to cry out to God for mercy. Now, it'd be quite a while before this thing works its way completely out. But here's a guy who had made his living, his life on the sea knew what it was to go through storms, but he went through that storm that day. Something was different, and God brought him to the end of himself and eventually the work, of, great work of conversion in his soul. Well, let us um, go to our God. I, it's another lesson in all of this that this God's worth praying to because he not only brings it, he can take it away. That's what it's telling us.